iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We're not de-extincting species, we're de-extincting genes. And they say it's impossible to de-extinct species. I try not to use the word impossible. But it's definitely possible to de-extinct genes and to determine their functionality. And so it's not that mysterious, really. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. And as you maybe can tell, I've got a cold, which is just fantastic. Uh, the reason I have a cold is because this past weekend, along with several dads, I took seven four-year-olds camping for the first time. And it just so happened that the spot we chose, which I will remind you, we are in California, which is in the middle of a mega drought, in the tail end of fire season, the spot we chose, it rained for 12 hours. And this was, again, a one-day excursion, so basically it rained for most of the time we were there and well, well, well into the night. Uh, the kids, of course, were not phased. They had a blast. Uh, the dads, we were definitely phased. Uh, but we made it work. It's one of those experiences you'll remember. But um, I did feel like a little bit like Charlie Brown, you know, where he has that just rain cloud that follows him around wherever he goes. It was just really preposterous. The super dry, parched place we literally chose. The wettest single spot. Just crazy. But anyhow, you did not tune in for a weather report. You want to hear about dinosaurs, eternal life, and genetically modified pigs that are being raised to grow organs for human transplant. Of course you did. This week's guest, he's responsible for companies working on all of those things I just mentioned. He is George Church. He's a genetics professor at Harvard. He's kind of seen as the founding father of genomics, and he's a very busy man. He's helped found literally dozens of companies. And the one that caught my attention, and perhaps yours, recently was one called Colossal, which recently raised $15 million for a really crazy idea, which is to use DNA from the woolly mammoth, combine it with that of the endangered Asian elephant, to create a basically a new species of cold resistant elephant so it'd be hairy it'd have like a bigger layer of fat to keep it warm and then unleash that across siberia maybe up canada alaska the idea being that one it would help these endangered animals stick around and also these elephants in particular they're very good at smashing down trees and the moss that really dominate a lot of these areas that used to be grasslands. And if they can kind of bring back these grasslands, the grass is much more effective at keeping the tons of CO2 locked in the soil currently and is in danger of being released as it erodes and kind of, you know, things thaw out due to climate change. So that's the idea. 
seriously. So we grabbed Professor Church to talk about all this and a few of his other projects, and it really just gives you a glimpse of what might be coming down the pike for all of us as we just get better at editing genes, the effects of which could be, well, really profound for all kinds of reasons. Anyhow, this is a good one. I know you're going to enjoy it. So here he is, George Church, founder of dozens of companies and talking about his latest one, Colossal. Enjoy. So I'm very excited about this. I have a four-year-old. We were just looking at a big dinosaur book yesterday. I never thought I would actually be talking about woolly mammoths, but like for real. Well, at least cold tolerant <laughs> elephants inspired by woolly mammoths. Yes, indeed, yeah. indeed. So, can we just start there? What is the big idea? Because you know, by the time this pod comes out, some of our listeners will have seen some of the headlines, but don't understand what it is you guys are up to. So, what's the big idea, and then we can kind of go go from there. So, there are a few ideas. The main one is developing technologies that will be useful for dealing with endangered species and endangered environments, or production of environments that are more aligned with human needs, such as environments that sequester carbon and have you know rich ecosystems. Uh, sometimes there's keystone species like the elephant mm. that will help an environment uh, in certain dimensions. And in particular, uh, we're trying to make cold resistant elephants both help the endangered species, the Asian elephant, have a new home where it's far away from the conflict with humans but also to help that environment sequester carbon better than ever before or back like it used to uh, 4,000 to 15,000 years ago. You mentioned keystone species. That kind of sounds self-explanatory, but if you could explain, what, what do you mean by that? Well, there are certain species that they don't have to be large. They could be large yeah. or small, but they have a big impact on the other species. So, for example, a successful rewilding is reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone Park in the United States after 70 years that they had been gone. And it resulted in change in the large herbivores mm. like uh, elk. And then that resulted in a change in the plants, which resulted in the beavers being able to build dams again because there were sufficient large trees to do that. And it just ramified throughout the park. And I think everybody wow. considered it a, a, a great success. Similarly, there have been restoration of bisons worldwide. Mm. They were down almost extinct. And now there are half a million of them worldwide. Right, right. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, this is just like Jurassic Park. You're going to, you know, revivify all kinds of things. But that, obviously, that's not what you're doing. But I'd love to understand how this is possible what has happened in the recent years that where this has become a potential reality right so michael crichton's book was prescient in in getting ancient dna it was a little too aggressive uh, there's there's no evidence <laughs> for ancient dna further back than a million years and he was going back 60 million years or more yeah but still a million years you get some animals that are really desperately needed and and very different from mm. ones that exist today so there's the elephants are one of the few species that can knock over trees without even trying, and they like to do it, Yeah, but they're not cold tolerant. They, they can't tolerate the minus 40 degree winters. Jurassic Park was purely for entertainment. This has some other advantages. It would be more of a wild uh, strategy than a, than a uh, theme park. <laughs> and also the, no hyper carnivore. Uh, right. T-Rex, Velociraptors, yeah. So, but this ability to kind of harvest ancient DNA and then marry it to DNA of Asian elephants 
has that been possible for a long time or is that only possible now? What is the enabling technology that is allowing you to even try this? It's very recent. So we and others came up with a fairly practical set of editing strategies over the, from about 2003 to the present. Mm. Uh, in particular, multiplex editing is critical where you can change many genes at once. So for most gene therapies, you're changing just one gene at a time. Yeah. But yeah. for this sort of thing, and another project that's, that's very similar in, in certain ways is uh, where we've engineered pigs in 42 different ways to make them more human compatible for organ transplant. And that totally works. We, we established the methods to do that. And that's really how recent that is just within the last four years. Oh, wow. And they're just now going into preclinical trials with the organ transplant. So literally this year. Now, we would probably need more edits than that in mm. elephants, more than 42, but we're also getting better at multiplex editing. So our record right now for human cell edits is 22,000 edits at once in one cell. And you can check those cells very carefully to make sure they're what you want before you turn them into a whole animal as we did with the pigs. And uh, the pigs for human transplant, what kind of organs are we talking about? Pretty much all of them that you get from humans, so heart, kidney, lungs, intestine, skin, you name it. Wow. Yeah, so there's a transplantation crisis, not enough donors, but also the quality is low. So these you could make organs that are even better than the original organ in being pathogen resistant or so forth. Yeah. Right. And that presumably... and. Pardon my ignorance, but presumably, would that have any impact on whether the body rejects it or not? There's a couple of dozen things that we had to do to make it so the body doesn't reject the organs. Mm. This idea of being able to accept organs that are not from tissue matched humans is becoming more common in things like CAR T therapy, but we had to change immune components, blood clotting, complement, various sugars, but we think we have that working now. And that is also part of what Colossal is doing, or is that under the kind of Colossal banner? Is that something completely separate? That's totally separate. The, the companies that we started to do that are called eGenesis in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Kihan in China. Got you. How many companies are you involved with? Well, over 160, <laughs> but I co-founded about 38. 38? Yeah. Are all of those still happening right now? Some of them have already transitioned either to publicly traded companies or a merger with other companies. There's very few that completely disappear without a trace. Their technology and their know-how is usually valuable. No matter how it turned out for the original investors, it's usually a success in terms of uh, the technology getting out there. Right. So how many are kind of currently active and working and developing stuff? I'd say about... 26 or so. Uh, there was a kind of a bumper crop. There were 24 in a 24-month period uh, just before COVID. Right, right, right. I saw some mention of you as kind of the founding father of gene editing. I presume this is why, because of all this prolific work. Well, very few of those companies are actually gene editing. Uh, <laughs> I, a few of them, like the pig company, eGenesis, yeah. uh, gene therapy company, Editas. Some of them are gene therapies without editing. Some of them are therapies without genes. Right. But uh, I think I'm more often described as a father of sequencing and synthetic biology than editing. Right. Multiplex editing, I think, is the thing that we tend to focus on more than most other groups. And how long have you been doing this work? Or how old are you, can I ask? I just turned 67. Happy birthday. 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've <laughs> been a research scientist since 1973 when I was a teenager publishing. I guess my first publication was in 74. You published first as a teenager. Well, I think by the time it came out, I was 20. <laughs> right, right, right. So I'd be curious just to, because, you know, you're working all of these companies that are doing lots of different stuff, you know, under this broad theme of gene sequencing and editing, etc. Is what we are now able to do today relative to where you started? Is it wildly different? Have we made... I'm just trying to kind of understand, you know, because if you get back to the where we started, which is, you know, extracting woolly mammoth DNA to help basically create new types of elephants that can live in Siberia. That seems on its face like just a kind of completely bananas idea. But for you, who's been on this call face since the 70s, could you see then like, okay, we're going to get there at some point? Or is it truly like, wow, this is kind of amazing? Well, it's both. Uh, I think I was sort of naively optimistic as a youth. Mm. Some people think I still am. I'd like to think that by 67, you get a little bit of uh, perspective. <laughs> but yeah, m many of the ideas that I had then were considered out of touch, like nanopore sequencing, but that's now, you know, a couple of decades later is uh, quite useful. Yeah. sequencing everybody on the planet. We have not done that, but we seem to be on a trajectory towards at least providing an affordable genome that everybody could use if they want. But just pause on that one. Where, where are we now? Because I know it was like the Human Genome Project was, was billions of dollars and took over a decade. And now we're at, last I checked, we were at like a thousand bucks to sequence your DNA. It's now 300 and it'll probably be 200 within a year. Right. And it will continue to drop. There's no particular physics reason why it can't go a lot lower. Right. And some of my new companies are doing new nanopore methods and new uh, molecular transistors, for example, that should be you know, so commoditized that they just fit on your cell phone. So kind of a general monitoring device that monitors all kinds of molecules. Right now we're kind of blind to the, the world around us. It's just full of microbes and molecules. Uh, but I think that's going to change in the same way that our cell phones typically have one, two, three cameras on them. Right, 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 right. So sorry, I, I interrupted you. We're talking about like the kind of the trajectory of all of the stuff that you saw back then. Yeah, so it's both uh, surprising and not surprising. I mean, I was optimistic, but it's exponential. So, mm. and we're not done yet. So, you know, the electronics, Moore's Law may be plateauing. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know, but this is definitely not. So it was $3 billion and now 300, but it's a much better genome too. So it's more than a 10 million fold improvement. Uh, the, the 3 billion was only half of what you would consider a clinical grade genome, which represents both your mother and your father and yeah. kind of separates out the mother and the father. They're very similar looking. That's a trick in and of itself. So now we have a clinical grade genome for 300 and it'll just get cheaper and better. Right. And there are other things, you know, therapeutics are also getting cheaper. Everybody talks about how they're getting more expensive, but their categories are getting way better. For example, delivering genes. Some of those are $2.5 million. And then the most famous recent one are the Pfizer and the Moderna, where you're delivering yeah. a messenger RNA gene for just $15 a dose. Yeah. So I think even therapies might be getting cheaper. Right. Now, that's a vaccine. It's not a really typical therapy. But anyway, it's, it looks good to me. Right. So just kind of playing that out, the idea of kind of revivifying the woolly mammoth in a way feels like not at all the most far out idea that we might be looking at over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Is that fair? 
I'm willing to leave it in the in the crazy category for now. Uh, you know, we believe in it, uh, but yeah. that doesn't mean everybody has to. Yeah. But part of the reason we try to be transparent about these things, whether they're solid or not, is so that people can get all their concerns out and we can start working on those concerns way in advance rather than waiting at the last minute where you become highly reactive. Yeah. You can be proactive. But, uh, you know, there's major hurdles. I mean, even so there's the hurdle of, of how do we get so many of them? You know, we're going to change the environment, but make sure that it's positive for as many people as possible. You know, something on the scale, there's going to be winners and losers, but we want to have, you know, like a very high ratio of winners to losers yeah. and compensate people that might be inconvenienced by their, let's say their land returning to a colder temperature, you know, if they were planning on planting crops that they may not win from that, but they were just restoring to what it was, say, pre-industrial. So this has to be considered by both large and small organizations. There has to be a lot of conversation and so forth. And that's what we're trying to do. The Times and the Sunday Times has an offer you just can't refuse. Get your first 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. And you can read about the latest about the lead up to COP26, as well as the ongoing row over the U.S.-U.K.-Australia submarine deal and what it means for relations with France and China. Subscribe now at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passenger Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I guess what I was trying to get at is like, you know, when you're talking about the ability to edit genes, do these different types of kind of procedures that, you know, when you were starting in the 70s just seemed so far off or looking at what you're doing with the pigs, et cetera, the mind quickly goes to, okay, well then what does this mean for longevity right? or preventative cancer therapies, you know, like just kind of wiping out whole swathes of ailments that today take out a significant portion of us. Right. So we do have research on that. We're, we're working on methods to uh, reverse aging. Not so much longevity. It's hard to get FDA approval for something where I'm going to say you're going to live an extra 40 years, which is kind of the variation that you might see in the population anyway. So you have to do these really long trials. 
Reversal is something you can see the results very quickly, so it's more like a conventional drug, but it's very unconventional in the in what it could do eventually. Mm. So we're working on that again using gene therapies, multiple ones at once, so so a combination drug. And we've published some papers on reversal in mice, and now we're doing it in dogs that rejuvenate bio, for example. And is the idea that I mean, without getting too deep into the weeds on that reversing aging, what function are you reversing or what kind of degradation are you seeking to reverse? Well, so I think there's been a gradual change in the field from it mostly being damage that you're trying to fix to regulation that you're trying to fix. So once you regulate them so that the cells think that they're younger, then they correct the damage, just like the cells in a, in a young child are much more resilient and self-correcting. And also there's a temptation. In fact, most drugs are aimed kind of late in a disease and they're very specific. So this deals with small cell lung cancer, or this deals with kidney failure. We feel that we're getting closer to the general mechanism of aging if the combination therapy that we use hits multiple diseases at once, not by each drug doing one disease, but with a collection of drugs doing them all at once. Got you. And do you have any kind of like dim outline of what that would mean for longevity if it works? Well, so even though we're aiming for aging reversal rather than longevity, it's hard to say. I mean, in principle, if you do aging reversal, you might get to the point where you're more likely to die of an accident. And a lot of people die of accidents. Yeah. So it means our public health strategies shift yet again. Right, right. And that feels more or less uh, feasible than the woolly mammoth idea. Well, I think they're they're comparable. In, in <laughs> a lot of the things we do seem very difficult, but then they end up being yeah. easier than we expected. Not everything is delayed and, and over budget. So, for example, the kind of sequencing we're doing now was expected to take six decades to get to an affordable genome sequence. And instead, we went way past what was considered affordable at the time in just six years. So instead of six decades of six years, and the same thing went for editing. Editing was a revolution that happened almost overnight, you know, between our first publication in 2013 to a a cluster of companies in Cambridge worth, you know, billions of dollars collectively in just two, two, three years. And back to Colossal. So you talk about you're trying to kind of be very transparent so everybody's like can kind of throw every all the kind of the you shouldn't do this because so two questions so what is the kind of core goal with this and what have you received in terms of pushback i'm sure you've received a lot but you know the top two or three things that seem like the most significant well i mean the core idea is both helping the endangered elephant and the other is helping keep carbon sequestered and adding to the sequestration. So some of the pushback are are just misunderstanding of what our goals are. They almost always open with, well, it's not going to be a real mammoth. And they sometimes even acknowledge that we're not trying to make one, but it's as if this is some kind of serious complaint. Uh, It's it's like saying, well, Elon Musk hasn't created a a colony on Mars yet. You know, it's like, therefore he's a failure. But I think more serious issues are, there's one category, which is we don't think it can be done. We don't think that it can be scaled using artificial womb. Mm. And then there's another category, even if we could do it, we shouldn't do it, uh, which I think is the more troubling one. I mean, whether it can or can't be done will be determined uh, very soon, yeah. or at least addressed soon. 
as usual, you have to pay attention to animal welfare and human welfare. And that yeah. requires just a lot of, you know, reflection and careful testing, such as the things that are regulated by the FDA, even for animal experiments. And we will, of course, abide by FDA, EPA, USDA. We'll have lots of conversations with them, with community leaders. The sort of thing might happen is what happened with the bison, we hope. And there's a fair amount of enthusiasm there. I've seen polls that look like maybe as little as 3% are giving serious pushback. And I mentioned earlier, there are winners and losers with anything, yeah. almost any technology. And you have to be very sensitive. Not It's not just majority rules. The majority inflicts itself on the minority opinion. So I think we're looking for win-wins as much as possible. Maybe you have a pet one that you you worry about. I'd be happy to. No, no, I I don't have a pet one, but I'll come up with something before before I let you go. Yeah, but I do have a question. So helping save how many Asian elephants are left? Like how endangered are they? Uh, it's over fifty thousand. Um, okay. The African elephant, which is a distant relative, actually more distant than the mammoth yeah. is to the Asian, is not endangered. It's probably ten times as many. Right. Um, now, not all of those are of reproductive age, but gotcha. you, know, you get the idea. Yeah. yeah. So I understand trying to help protect a species. Everybody gets that. What I'm less clear on is what the direct impact would be on carbon sequestration and kind of helping the environment. So part of this is work from the Zimov team in Chersky and the science station at Pleistocene Park where they have hypothesized and collected data that's relevant and supportive that the ancient herbivores that disappeared about the time that humans arrived, I mean, maybe it's coincidence, maybe we, yeah. we were hungry, uh, maybe we killed more than we needed to eat. But in any case, there was a mass extinction, probably accelerated by human arrival. And that resulted in a conversion from grass to trees. Mm. And we'd like to return that. And the herbivores that have already been returned to Pleistocene Park are doing a good job of keeping the trees in check once they're removed, but they don't remove them. Even the largest ones like the bison and caribou don't knock down trees. Uh, they'll just right. nibble at the, the shoots of new trees. But the elephants love it. You can go on the internet and find lots of movies of elephants yeah. knocking down pretty big trees, while the trees in the Arctic are usually pretty small. So it'd be quite easy for them to go at a sort of normal walking pace, knocking down trees. And then they, they become part of the permafrost. Basically, they add more carbon to it. Mm. Uh, they get covered over but the next year by another round of grass. And that's the reason that the carbon layer in the Arctic is so thick. I see. All that carbon would be sequestered and wouldn't trap light so that their dark bark has a an albedo that causes warming. Uh, they're not very photosynthetic, so they don't sequester as quickly. And they kind of protect the land from the minus 40 wind by building up a big downy snow layer. Right. So those three things would be much improved by certain conservationist ecologists uh, for what we want, which is greater carbon sequestration in the Arctic. Right. In a way that would kind of move the needle meaningfully for the world, or is it just more of kind of like, this is another needle on the haystack that's going to be a good thing overall? Uh, I think it'll move it more than, you know, converting from complex fluorescence to LEDs. I mean, the total human consumption is about 10 gigatons per year of carbon. Yeah. And even if we completely remove humans, we're already higher than we should be. And even an increase of two degrees centigrade 
could result in melting the tundra, which would release 1,400 gigatons. So instead of 10 gigatons, we're talking 1,400 gigatons, much of it in the form of methane, which is 30 times worse than carbon dioxide. So I think, you know, some of the little things we get very excited about Mm. are very, I mean, I'm totally enthusiastic about doing these, these things that are symbolic in our everyday lives, but they're small compared to the 1,400 gigatons at risk and the hundreds of gigatons right. that could be sequestered de novo, uh, returning us possibly to pre-industrial state. Got you. Um, I know we're short on time, so I have two other questions. One is the how, like kind of a high level. You mentioned earlier uh, artificial womb and how this would actually work potentially at scale. If you just briefly explain kind of what that process would be. And then lastly, how was the fundraising? Was this easy was this hard were people like your bananas or they looked at your 30 odd companies and be like yeah okay we're going to give you some money because this sounds off the wall but we're going to back you yeah so i would say that it was both easy and hard i mean i i <laughs> had never really made an ask for money on this i'd neither asked governments nor mm. investors i had asked a philanthropic gift once just as a lark i was having breakfast with peter thiel and he said, list three projects. And I I thought he was going to go for the, our anti-aging work. Yeah. But instead, he went for this. And he gave us $100,000, which we spread out over a decade. But $10,000 a year is actually starvation totally. for the kind of lab that we run. You know, Most of our projects have you know 100 times that amount. So now we've moved it into the zone where it's like our other projects. It's fully funded. But it just happened out of the blue. Ben uh, Lamb came out of nowhere and... Uh, introduced himself, immediately fell in love with the team and the project, and he raised the money. So I, you'd have to ask him how hard his job was, but I think even <laughs> even his was not that hard. Right. It was very pleasant. I think in general over the years, it's gotten easier from people in my lab starting up companies, but this was by far the easiest. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. It, it's a weird journalistic phenomenon in that we have never before this week done a press release or in any way particularly encouraged it, but it comes up again and again since 2006. And even when I give lectures on a different topic and nothing to do with this, and even though I've never published a paper on this, it still comes up in the questioning session. Right, 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 right. So it's a very attractive topic. Totally. And yeah, so just if you could briefly explain how this would actually work, like how you would actually create these elephants you know we're, we're trying to keep an open mind to different possibilities we've done essentially a dry run in the context of the organ transplant pigs and the way that was done is we would make multiple edits in somatic cells meaning body cells like uh, mm. skin cells and then transplant the nucleus that contains the dna into an egg a pig egg and then implant that into a surrogate mother and then we get a baby pig And those are now breeding and they're healthy. Right. And we have dozens of them. Okay. So we know that we can do that with a large mammal. Because of the difficulty of just the size of the animal and the endangered species nature of it, we're trying to avoid one step that we did with the pigs, which is actually two steps, the the getting the eggs out, which is invasive, and the implantation in the surrogate, which is invasive. And we don't want to interfere with current breeding of Asian or even African elephants. So Mm. we're trying to do it in vitro. Now, that sounds probably the most sci-fi. Yeah. But it's not that unusual. Most vertebrates right now grow outside of the 
mother mm. and father's body there so it's fish amphibia reptiles birds and even some mammals like the duck-billed platypus so yeah we're not asking for that much furthermore experimentally there's a lot of progress in getting mice to grow up until it sort of limb bud stage you know there, where you can kind of see that it's a, a mouse and on the other end going super preemie lambs have been grown in sort of bag shaped bioreactors from sort of midpoint onwards so you're, right. you can go almost to the midpoint and from the midpoint so we need to, to join those up and we're doing that via something we've developed and published of how we can turn stem cells into almost any cell or set of cells so we're making endometrium from stem cells gotcha and we'll test that on mice and then convert it to elephant and then just lastly is the kind of the source material so to speak the actual woolly mammoth dna is that a limiting factor not really. The source material is the computer. It's been fed <laughs> with uh, about 23 elephant species, including mm. about half of them extinct. And that number will keep growing. And sometimes people worry about diversity. We have more diversity than you could possibly imagine because most diversity is limited to geographically isolated herd. But this, we've got the entire planet and there were elephants on almost every continent except for Antarctica and Australia. We have the whole planet and we can go back a million years. So we have an incredible diversity to draw from, and that will grow in the computers with time. And if we can do it once, it gets easier and easier to do it after that. So is the idea then, is you just basically your kind of, the computer, your gene editing process can actually recreate the woolly mammoth DNA. You're not actually having to f take some from some kind of remains or whatever and inject it into the soup so to speak no in fact it's it's ill-advised to take it directly without going through the computer because it's broken up into really small pieces yeah and in the computer we can reassemble it virtually into elephant chromosome size pieces got you and we're not limited to mammoth dna either so we're not trying to do the entire mammoth exchange although we could probably the progress curve looks like we could do a million changes maybe someday now we're sort of stuck in the 100 to 20,000 range. Got you. But we're not limited there. So some of the things we want to work with are virus resistance and poacher resistance by regulating the tusk length. So we want to have both big tusks for some purposes and short tusks for most of the wild elephants, uh, which is already exists in the wild right now. So those are two things that might be considered more synthetic biology than de-extinction. We have de-extincted, we, the whole community, has de-extincted a couple of genes. I think what people get confused about is whether we're not de-extincting species, we're de-extincting genes. And they say it's impossible to de-extinct species. I try not to use the word impossible, but it's definitely possible to de-extinct genes and to determine their functionality. And the two that have been de-extincted, hemoglobin and trip D3, have been shown by other groups to be exactly what you expect of cold tolerance. So it's not that mysterious, really. Right, right, right. I know you have to go. I could ask you a million more questions, but I think we can leave it there. But I thank you for the time. It's fascinating. And um, I wish you luck. It'd be pretty cool to see um, elephants in Siberia. <laughs> Hopefully in Canada and Alaska, too. We'll take it day by day, see how it goes. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank George for taking the time. He's a very busy man, as we, as we mentioned. I want to thank you all for listening. Find me. I'll be in the paper this weekend. I'll be writing about, I think I'm going to be writing about Facebook. I'll be writing about meditation apps, maybe some other bits and pieces. So do check those out at thetimes.co.uk. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will be back next week with another fabulous pod for you. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 